This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. This episode of Futuropolis is brought to you by Braintree. If you're working on a mobile app and searching for a simple payment solution, check out Braintree. With one simple integration, you can offer your customers every way to pay, period. To learn more and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com future. So you know that thing that powers everything but in reality isn't really worth anything? Is this like a riddle or something? No, it's just that whenever I think about money, I get existential. How can something so important be a little piece of paper? Well, okay, but no matter how you feel about it, money is how we get by. We need it to get groceries, buy clothes, pay for rent. But it's also vulnerable. Just look at what happened to Target. In a 2013 data breach, about 42 million people had their credit card information stolen. Let's hope the next wave of money and payment systems can fix that. Well, that's what we're talking about today on this episode of Futuropolis, the future of money. I'm Brianna Draxler. And I'm Lindsay Cradwell. I guess we should start by figuring out what money is in the first place. Futurist Heather Schlegel has a good definition. Here's how she sees it. I mean, if you think about what money is really about, it facilitates transactions between people. Money is a technology that allows us to create trust between people that we don't necessarily know. She makes a good point. It's pretty simple when you think about it. But that trust has to be based on something a little more tangible. At least it used to be. In 1929, back when precious metals were the standard for our money's value, popular science speculated, At the present, gold is supreme. In the future, some entirely different substance, a speaker before the American Chemical Society says it will be nitrogen, may form the world's basis of wealth. Well, that nitrogen thing didn't really pan out, but the article's next predictions came true. All of the new currency is to be green. Each denomination is to have a distinct portrait, so its value can be seen at a glance, and note raises cannot make a 10 or $100 bill of a one. But as technology has advanced, the need for that green paper money, or even checks and credit cards, is going away. I think plastic is on on the IV drip at this point. I think it's uh, a matter of time before plastic goes away. I think payments will become invisible behind the scenes. That's Virginia Habern. She's vice president of Insights and Advocacy at Fiserv, a company that provides the technology for a lot of our online banking. And so without paper or plastic, how exactly will we pay for things? Here's Virginia again. You know, you can very easily see how within five to ten years, I could be flying in late from a business meeting and not have to go through the anxiety of thinking, oh, no, there's no milk. Because because of the connected devices, my smart refrigerator has sent a signal to some entity that I might have a contract with, could be a delivery service, could be anybody, saying Virginia has no milk in her refrigerator. This is high on her list of priorities. Let's go ahead and, and get two gallons send it to her house, payment's going to happen behind the scenes, Virginia gets an alert. I love the sound of that. It's like the old-fashioned milkman coming full circle. Except without any actual milkman. Yeah, there's that. 
So while researchers are working out the kinks with automated milk delivery, the rest of us will probably be turning to things like digital wallets. They can store all your card information in the cloud. That way, you can easily buy a pair of shoes online or pay for your latte with your smartphone. And then there are apps like Venmo, which links to your bank account. It lets you pay your friends back for pizza. All you do is type in their phone number or email address, and then voila, money is sent. Yeah, but as you said, they keep all the information from your bank account on file. Good point. So maybe these easy, speedy payments aren't all they're cracked up to be? I do think the price is the, the data, the consumer's data in particular. That's Marla Blow. She's a partner in a finance investment company called Fenway Summer. And she sums it up pretty well. We give up some privacy for the sake of taking hassle out of paying for things. And then there's the problem of security. Here's Heather again. Just because we have advances in security technology, it also means we're going to have advances in people wanting to hack. So it's it's kind of like a, a Cold War type situation. We're going to continue to see security advance. We're going to continue to see people challenge that security. And there's going to continue to be more technology developed to enhance security. How about Apple Pay? It only works with your phone using your fingerprint, right? That sounds pretty safe to me. Yeah, Apple Pay definitely has its advantages, especially for people who are glued to their phones, which for future generations could very well be everyone. Here's Marla again. I have a four-year-old who has essentially grown up in kind of the iPad era. He may grow up in a world where he never swipes. If he never gets a plastic, he never uses a credit card or may not, or you know, may, may present his phone or in some future world, maybe you, you'd biometrically transact and he just presents his thumb or, or some other form of this. Um, all of a sudden, there may, there may not be a wallet. So in that swipe-free future, what will we be paying with? The PopSci archives have a few interesting ideas in a 1995 article, though they're kind of creepy, too. Once e-money is accepted as universally as greenbacks, don't be surprised if a disheveled man on the street steps up to you and says, Brother, can you spare a little stored value? Such is the vision of smart card proponents who push chip-embedded plastic as a realistic alternative to cash. If we had our way, we'd implant a chip behind everyone's ear in the maternity ward, says Ronald Kane. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty happy I don't have a chip implanted behind my ear. At least not yet. But all of this speculation is still tied to the same old monetary system. Even if you're using a digital wallet or transferring money to someone via an app, that money is all stored in a traditional bank. And don't forget credit cards. Even if they're stored in Apple Pay or Venmo, they're still backed by those big companies, Visa, MasterCard, American Express. What about a different kind of money? One that's completely digital and not backed by any government? That's right, folks. We're talking about Bitcoin. Can Bitcoin really become the currency of the future? Well, to find out, we decided to ask Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss. They were early adopters of the cryptocurrency, and today they run a Bitcoin exchange called Gemini. We'll hear more from them right after this quick message from our sponsor. This episode of Futuropolis is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy online payments. And it might be how we all pay in the future. If you're a mobile app developer, check out Braintree. Braintree is the payment solution used by companies like Uber, Airbnb, Hotel Tonight, Living Social, and Munchery. Braintree has made the payment experiences in these apps seamless and magical. And now, you can add a similar experience to your own app. 
With excellent customer service and simple integration, Braintree gets you ready to receive payments quickly. And Braintree's continuous support plus fast payouts means you'll be prepared as your company grows from your first dollar to your billionth. Braintree is helping solve the problem of mobile cart abandonment by offering a best-in-class mobile checkout experience. Check it out for yourself. Braintree gives you a full-stack payment solution, support for all payment types your customers might want. Start accepting PayPal, Apple Pay, Bitcoin, Venmo, cards, and more, all with a single integration across all platforms, with superior fraud protection, customer service, and fast payouts. To learn more and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com future. And we're back with Cameron and Tyler Winkleboss. My name is Tyler Winkleboss. I am currently an entrepreneur and an angel investor. I am the CEO of a Bitcoin exchange called Gemini.com. I'm Cameron Wickelvoss. Um, Like Tyler, I'm also an entrepreneur investor. Most recently, we've been founding Gemini.com, and I am the president of that. So today's topic is money. What is it in the tech world about Bitcoin in particular that really piqued your interest initially? So we are fascinated with Bitcoin because we feel it's the first iteration of money that's actually built for the internet by engineers, by the same type of engineers who built the internet itself. Yeah. And I think just to further add to that, I think, um, you know, credit cards also go into that bucket of sort of technologies that were invented um, decades ago. There's a couple of facets of Bitcoin, but focusing just on the protocol aspect right now, um, it's really the first money protocol um, that looks very viable and decentralized to work over the internet and send value. And and when we when you sort of step back and you look at the early days of the internet, this would have been included. And there's actually there's actually a sort of um, in one of the early internet proposals, there's a empty space for something like this. But they hadn't made the computer science breakthroughs until about 2009 for um, the ability to exchange value over. The internet. So what is it about sending money in particular that has made those protocols more difficult to create? I mean, email is ubiquitous already. Why is money so much harder to transfer via internet? I think, so um, I guess the decentralized nature, if you look at um, typical payment systems like your credit card, right, you're usually using a network like Visa. And Visa's, it's a, it's a centralized network. And Visa basically looks at a transaction and determines whether it's valid or not, if it's fraudulent or it's a double spend. And so you have a central authority that's basically determining the validity of a given transaction. With Bitcoin, it's decentralized. There is no central authority. There's no visa or central bank saying this is valid or this is not. And so how do you create, when you have a decentralized um, network, how do you basically police that and make sure that I'm not sending you a Bitcoin and sending Tyler a Bitcoin at the same time? If there's no sort of central authority, how do you um, effectively referee that? And the so that was sort of the major computer science breakthrough is building consensus on a decentralized network. So how do you how do you create a system of value that's f- a fixed supply that um, is scarce with ones and zeros? Because traditionally, data is um, it's not scarce, and there's so much of it on the internet, and it, we don't even meter it, and so it's very cheap. So how do you create this effectively a digital gold where there's a fixed supply so that um, it mirrors the characteristics of money? So this is super interesting in that like computer science 
side of things. But as a consumer, like what does spending Bitcoin, like what would it look like to go and pay for something with Bitcoin? The example is you could go into a coffee shop. There would be a QR code at the register. You'd scan it with your QR code reader with your phone. And then you could type in the amount of Bitcoin to send or that you owe. And you press send just like an email. So it's it's quite easy. I think that not everyone accepts Bitcoin. So it's merchant adoption is is still something that is obviously not per, as pervasive as swiping a credit card. Tyler's right that that you can, in theory, just go up and scan a QR code. But but the vast majority of people aren't going to do that. They don't. Um, I don't know if my mom's going to be doing that anytime soon. Um, and so what is a potential likely outcome is that you're actually Bitcoin underpins. It's sort of the rails in the system. So you actually never the end users never exposed to Bitcoin. At the end of the day, they they're all they're seeing is a quicker transaction that's basically cheaper and they have lesser fees. Um, they're not really cognizant of whether Bitcoin is underneath the rails or not. Um, so I, I think that it's unclear to us, at least me, whether we'll be buying cups of coffee with Bitcoin a year or two from now, or we're just going to be buying cups of coffee like we normally do, and it's just going to be a cheaper cup of coffee. But in other parts of the world, uh, credit cards don't work or they're not popular or they the infrastructure doesn't even exist so it doesn't matter because if someone has a data connection in a phone then you can all of a sudden just send them bitcoin you know there's a good chance a lot of countries just like they overrode installing landlines and telephone poles and all this costly infrastructure and just went leapfrogged it went straight to cellular they may do that with with uh cryptocurrencies like bitcoin and forget about um the visa infrastructure or the Western unions or whatever, and all this stuff that, that maybe has no interest of getting there anytime soon, just go over the internet with payments. Yeah, it seems like it has a real democratizing force, that it, that it can sort of spread that out um, and reach a lot more people. What do you think it's going to take to make it get into the mainstream like that? I know there's sort of like that user-friendliness that hasn't been overcome. Are there other aspects that have prevented it from getting wider use? So the... This is where this is what kind of brought us to founding our startup Gemini.com, which is a Bitcoin exchange, because there really is no licensed, regulated uh, marketplace to buy Bitcoin in the United States today. So most people are buying Bitcoin. They are wiring offshore the money offshores to exchanges such as Mt. Gox, um, which were not regulated at the time and actually collapsed and a lot of people lost money. So what we basically wanted to create was a place where you could come on and your U.S. dollars would not leave the shores. It would be, we would be regulated by the same regulars who potentially regulate your bank down the street, like your Wells Fargo or whatnot. I see. So you're making it easier and more appealing for people to get involved. This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Uh, 
<laughs> Sounds like a no. Well, they don't really know what this is. Voices, music, breathing. But you know, I'm not gonna mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. And now, back to the show. I think sometimes people who aren't in this world and don't know what's going on hear Bitcoin, think of Silk Road, think that it's some illegal underground type of thing. How, you know, how do we get past that? Without a doubt, Silk Road and a lot of the early operators and... and some of the early Bitcoin adopters um, definitely did a disservice to Bitcoin for sure. Um, I think a lot of it's just time and people understanding and, and educating more about Bitcoin. Um, I think the two data points that stick out to me was was that the Silk Road Bitcoins that were confiscated um, were ultimately auctioned by the federal government in a U.S. Marshals auction. So that it, that's a pretty implicit... Um, sort of stamp of approval that this is this is legitimate value. The irony here is that Bitcoin is not a good place for criminals to do illicit behavior. And we know that because Silk Road was busted and a lot of people who use, use Bitcoin on Silk Road were busted, including the federal agents who busted Silk Road, two of them, and then embezzled some of the Bitcoin. Because every transaction in Bitcoin is memorialized for the rest of time. And you can forensically analyze the Bitcoin blockchain. Bitcoin's not anonymous. It's pseudonymous. But if I send you a Bitcoin right now, everybody in the world will see that movement of Bitcoin. And we might not know that it's you and me on the other end, but 20 years from now, we can still go back and see that movement of money and that transaction. And we may very well know that you're you and that it's not hard to get to you and then come to me. So Bitcoin is, it's like a trail of breadcrumbs in a way or jelly beans. And so you can retroactively um, solve crimes. You can do all of these things with, that, that doesn't exist when I hand someone a $100 bill on the, the, the street corner. That's completely anonymous. And whoever was just there at the moment, whoever could see that, saw that. So the irony is that is that Bitcoin's a terrible place for for criminals to conduct their activity, and in fact, the the best the best technology still is the U.S. dollar bill. So, what do you think then the the Bitcoin economy is going to look like once the sensationalism has passed and people start adopting this? Are we going to see Bitcoin at Whole Foods or at the farmers market? Like, what levels? Are these going to become a part of our life? I think in the in the future, things like uh, property deeds and uh, title insurance and escrow and all of the all of the mortgage closing documents um, could be moved to a blockchain type transaction. So all of that paper would be eliminated, and whoever held the private key um, to that the metadata on that Bitcoin uh, that was in their public address, they could send that to the, you know, the buyer of the property, or I could send you uh, the cryptographic secret to 
your new uh, automobile and all of a sudden um, you have your car key, but it's in your phone. And so when you think about Bitcoin, you should think of it like programmable money. You could earmark it for only a certain amount of addresses and you know that the AMC and the Lowe's Theater, this is their Bitcoin address. So that Bitcoin may only be moved or spent there. It can't be spent um, you know, at the, the bar down the street. Bitcoin is based on this idea that you don't have to trust anyone um, and it's this this assumption that that you know everyone doesn't have to be a good actor, but everyone still beautifully and elegantly cooperates uh, based on self interest. So um, yeah, it's 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 smart money, if you will, you know. And I think like the the cash in you know your back pocket is is dumb money. Is there still a certain amount of privacy you're giving up by having that? held somewhere ultimately in bitcoin you're going to you're going to have to trust certain institutions uh, and companies but no one company should have the ability to unilaterally sort of block transactions or, or control the network so to speak it's important to recognize that bitcoin enables a type of trade and exchange of value that currently can't happen or never will happen with the, the current financial systems and the other thing which gets really exciting and sort of sci-fi is this idea of um, computers and the Internet of Things. A computer or a self-driving car can't go and open up a bank account at J.P. Morgan or Wells Fargo, but they can plug into protocols. So all of a sudden, the Internet of Things can do lightweight economic transactions on the blockchain. So if your, your house or your power meter needs to purchase more energy, it can do that with Bitcoin if you program it a certain way. Your your fridge can can buy um, more uh, you know sodas online and have them delivered by a drone. That's all paid in Bitcoin, and you can see all the flow of money. And if it's only two dollars or one dollar, it's okay because it's such an efficient system. Whereas the current system, you can't send a dollar online to Hong Kong. It's too it's too expensive. It's too prohibitive because of all the middlemen, because of all the centralization, because of all the anti-fraud uh, expense and costs. So this whole new vista of, of trade and this whole new future of, of the Internet of Things actually interacting and becoming not just smart but intelligent. The other thing is that the majority of the world is not banked. There's a lot of people who don't qualify. There's a lot of banks that won't deal with them because they're not big enough customers. And so there's there's you know underserved, and then there's completely unbanked, um, and that's the majority of the world's population. And Bitcoin has this incredible um, potential, powerful, like impactful uh, capabilities that that is so exciting because we're business guys and we get to you know work with it. But it feels like this is you know, one of those few places where you can win on both sides. Will it replace money? Is this going to replace like cash and dollars as we know it? No, I don't think that Bitcoin competes with the dollar. I think it will improve the dollar. I think the dollar will go onto its own blockchain. I think the U.S. dollar will be digital in the future. I think cash will be, it will look like vinyl. It will be something that hipsters uh, use and it will be something you tell your grandkids that you had just like I think driving a car will will look like um, will be this skill that's really old-fashioned and I don't think people are going to drive cars in the future and a lot of people um, 
think of Bitcoin and its programmability as driverless money. It's almost like a self-driving car. I think the better question is, will gold exist in the future? Will people see gold as a store of value? Will gold bugs all become Bitcoin bugs? I think the analogy of driverless money and driverless cars is is pretty good. And I think that's a future that, that um, it's not an if, it's really a when. It's exciting to imagine. Can't wait. Thank you guys so much for coming in and talking with us today. Thanks, Thanks for having, having us. us. <laughs> <laughs> do you always do that in unison? We try. We, work, we <laughs> actually try not to do it in unison, but, but then, the it, then we do it in unison. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, so we do admit Bitcoin isn't that futuristic. I mean, Bitcoin is a thing. It's here already. People use it. And futurist Heather Schlegel is looking beyond that. I do believe in the future we will have a before Bitcoin and after Bitcoin perspective. And Bitcoin is a phenomenal technology, but there are other new technologies that are going to equally and potentially more dramatically change the future of money. That's it for this episode of Futuropolis. If you want more, you can find us at popsci.com or on Twitter at popsci. Futuropolis is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. We'd like to thank Andy Bowers, Henry Malofsky, and Laura Mayer. Thanks also to Lydia Chain for her transcription assistance and to Nicole Liu for digging through the archives to pull up those gems. And a big thank you, as always, to Sophie Bushwick, the voice of our archives. I'm Brianna Draxler. And I'm Lindsay Cradwell. Thanks for listening. See you next time. In the future.